up on today's show, an Indigenous nonprofit group is seeking to get an ownership stake in Trans Mountain Pipeline. We'll also talk about how businesses can best help employees disconnect from work and the latest on EMS relief in our province. We know it's been a real problem for some time. A new plan has been announced to try and solve that problem. Interesting story here. A new Indigenous nonprofit organization is um, going after an ownership stake in the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And the aim here is to make sure that all of the communities along the route of that pipeline get their benefits directly. The group is called Nasika Services. I think I'm saying that right, but we'll find out for sure when we chat with Chief Tony Alexis of the Alexis Nakota Sioux Nation in our province, also the chair and the founding director of Nasika, joins us now. Uh, Chief, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Hey, Shay, how are you? Good, good. Am I saying it right, Nasika? Nasika, correct. Nasika Services. Okay. Uh, interesting idea. So basically, the plan here is to put together a nonprofit group of as many of the communities along the route as possible, right? Is it that simple? It, yeah. So there's uh, 14, 14 who are, are Indigenous communities right now who are a part of it. There are 129 communities that Canada has uh, consulted with and engaged uh, regarding the Trans Mountain Pipeline. So you, you got a good start, but still obviously a lot more opportunity there for sure. What's what's the goal? Why go in? Is it to represent all of these communities essentially? Well, we're we're a not for profit, so our goal is to to support the communities and help facilitate uh, a transaction to uh, to help the communities purchase the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And there there are benefits. Like you look at the benefits, you know, it's one of the probably the most responsible thing we can do as Indigenous people today. The previous pipeline that went through the area 60 years ago, you know, there were no benefits to the Indigenous community. But today, the opportunity is there for us to receive those economic benefits. At the same time, if we have environmental issues, we'll be sitting at the table. We can address those environmental issues and even governance going forward. You know, the having a seat at the table is very important. Um, of course, the federal government owns the pipeline right now, but they have always said they're definitely open to transferring ownership, and especially to Indigenous-led groups. Have you had any talks yet? I know it's still really early. Yeah, discussions uh, have been with Canada. We have had some discussions. They've focused on engagement. They've decided to work directly with groups like Nasika instead of negotiating with individual communities. And uh, right now, you know, we like to uh, say we want to buy it today, but unfortunately that's not the case. We do not know what the terms transaction are and upon where Canada is willing to proceed. So, But we do expect negotiations to begin in the next month or two. Okay, next month or two. In terms of financing, I mean, we're talking billions of dollars here. Where do you think that money is going to come from? Um, so first step, again, is to disclose Canada needs to share what the terms and conditions are and how, what, in what way they're willing to sell this. And then we're expecting, uh, we're not expecting ownership for free, of course, but, yep. you know, we do expect Canada to be a part of the financing solution. Now, you're not the only group um, that is in, is pursuing this. There's a bunch of different Indigenous-led groups that want to get involved. How, how is that going to work out, Chief? Is there a possibility that you all come together into one entity, or is it going to be competing bids? How do you envision that playing itself out? Again, again, it's Canada. Canada is it's in the court of Canada. I mean, the, you know, Canada's holding yeah, the ball right design. now, right? Yeah. So once we know what the terms and conditions are, the big difference for us is that we're not for profit. Yeah. You know, there are other groups, and they, they want to buy the pipeline themselves, and you know, in, in some case, they're they they have a pipeline partner that'll take fifty percent. 
But where we are at is we're not seeking or receive any profit from the transaction, and we do not have a predetermined pipeline operating partner or a financial backing from banks. So our goal is to help facilitate uh, for the community so that they have ownerships, and so any benefit that comes will go directly to them. So 100% of the proceeds from this pipeline would be given directly back to the communities along the pipeline route? Yep. All right, and you expect some sort of negotiations within the next month or two? Yes. Excellent. Uh, Chief, I I appreciate you joining us today and giving us an update. Uh, Thank you so much. We'll follow this along and check in again. Thank you, Shay. Have a good day. You too. That is Chief Tony Alexis of the Alexis Nakota Sioux Nation. Uh, He is the chair and the founding director of Nasika. Nasika Services, and as you heard, it's a nonprofit organization. Right now, they represent about 14 of the Indigenous communities that are along the Trans Mountain Pipeline route. As you heard, there's 129 of these communities in total um, along the route, and uh, there's negotiations with all of them to see if they can get them uh, to come on board um, and be part of this. And as he said, it's the only nonprofit. There are a bunch. There are a bunch of different um, community groups and uh, Indigenous-led initiatives that have already come forward. Uh, Project Reconciliation, for example, they want a 100% ownership stake in this pipeline with no equity requirement or liability risk to Indigenous partners. The goal there, distribute the cash flow from the pipeline between the participating Indigenous community owners and an Indigenous sovereign wealth fund that will invest in energy transition projects. There's Chinook Pathways, they're also seeking an equity stake. It's an Indigenous-led partnership formed by Western Indigenous Pipeline Group and its industry partner, which is Pembina Pipeline Corporation. So there's a number of groups that have stepped up um, and expressed an interest in taking over ownership of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Right now, as you know, it is owned by the federal government, but they've said right from day one um, they are open to and, in fact, would be very much interested in transferring ownership at some point. So negotiations in the next month or two. Interesting to follow that along. We're going to have a discussion here, and this is a situation that, um, as we mark the two-year anniversary of Canada's first COVID case, something that has become just a way of life for a lot of Canadians, millions of Canadians, I would guess, is this whole work-from-home thing, which was something that, you know, if you think back a couple of years ago, it was something that some people did, Maybe some people did it a day a week or something like that. It was something that you heard about. It wasn't a completely foreign concept, um, but it's suddenly become a way of living for a lot of people. Not all, of course. I mean, there's those of us that we can't do our jobs from home. We need to go into the workplace. Um, But for a lot of people, the discovery was made that, you know what? We can do just fine from home. We don't need to be going into an office or whatever the case may be. We can function just fine. So it's going to change the way things are. And for people that find themselves in that position, it's it's going to be an adjustment. It's going to be a realignment. And if you think about it, when you're working from home, um, what's the perception? When are you working? When are you not working? How do you define what is work time? What is home time? It's been a real struggle for a lot of people. And there's been some jurisdictions around the world and in our country province of Ontario, as a matter of fact, that have tried to legislate this, the right to disconnect, the right to say, yes, I'm home, and yes, I work from home, but you can't send me an email at 9.30 at night and expect me to respond to it right away, because I'm not at work. you got to treat it just like an office. It's really tough to nail down how that works, because 
It's not the same for everybody, but is there a way we can do this? We're going to chat now with Dr. Nita Chinzer, who's an associate professor in human resource management and business consulting at the University of Guelph. Uh, Nita, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. I feel like we're going to open up Pandora's box today, so this is an interesting topic. It it really is an interesting topic, and I think it's a reality for so many Canadians. It was thrust upon them, but now they're living it. Well, let me help. So the stats show us pre-COVID, 6% of us were working from home at least one day of the week. So that was 6%. And during COVID, so the last stats I saw were for April, um, it was 39 to 40% of us. Wow. We're working from home three or more days of the week. So this, um, you know, perpetual isolation, but you're right, the blurring of when I'm, when am I technically at work and when am I at home is something we definitely needed clarity on. Yeah. So now it's, 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 you know, it's a reality for millions of Canadians and, and that's what it comes down to, right? Is sort of helping employees find that balance and that ability to say, okay, I'm at work. I'll do my eight hours a day if that's what it's required or whatever the case may be. But Mm -hmm. that needs to be, you know, sort of separated because physically it no longer is. Well, you know what happened, too, is when COVID first hit, people felt high levels of insecurity, and they also felt a lot of obligation and responsibility towards their work. So when we were first sent at home, we started working more hours than what we were doing in the office. And that set up some bad... Um, you know, bad norms in the workplace where people were expected to respond at midnight and check emails on Saturdays. And it's been two years. It's time to shake that bad habit and try something better. Now, we've seen some, you know, I think France, maybe Ireland, yes. province of Ontario have actually tried to come in with legislation saying companies cannot do this. Will that work? And how can that legislation be structured so that it might work? Well, what I appreciate about the legislation is it begins to set the norm. So it's the same as when we had minimum wage legislation. When that first came out, people were like, oh, my goodness, are companies going to follow this or not? But it set the tone for what we can expect at work. And it enabled and empowered us as employees to say, wait a minute, I'm not working for less than this. So there's going to be a path of escalation if you feel that that gets violated. But it's actually like proactive. Employers who have more than 25 employees have to set up policy. Yeah. To say, okay, now you got to identify when you're at work and what's going to happen if you get contacted outside work. So it's going to, over time, normalize the same way that minimum wage got normalized and overtime got normalized and, you know, having a paid lunch off got normalized. These kinds of things, I think it really brings that, like, it signals for us that we need work-life balance and that we are not slaves at work. We don't have to always be accessible. What about the fact that when you try and legislate it, in a lot of ways, what works for you may not work for me or the guy sitting next to me. I mean, it can be extreme. Like, if you've got kids, your work-life balance may look entirely different from mine, who has no kids that I need to be worried. I mean, can you get it that tailor-made, for lack of a better word? Definitely. And so that's the beauty of it, is that originally some people were saying that this is going to get rid of the flexibility that we have at work. And the article that we published in the National Post yesterday, as well as the Conversation Canada the day before, was really around this idea that we can't give up the flexibility that we currently have in order for the right to disconnect. So someone may be very, very productive at night, and we know that there's night owls, and they've already made the arrangement that they're going to be working at night. They have every entitlement to go ahead and do that, and they can identify those as their working hours, or that is their time where they're going to try to be productive. Whereas someone else may be trying to be productive in the morning, or they take a break in the day and they come back to their work. So the issue then comes is the policy needs to say that first we have to identify our hours, and then outside of those hours, 
we are not supposed to be accessible and you can't put those demands on us. My colleague and I, Jamie Grumman, who's also at the University of Guelph, for pushing the envelope even further and saying, wait a minute, let's really stop and think about the concept of how many hours we work, because that's an evolving topic too. Yes. For those 40% of the people who are working from home, are they putting in, quote unquote, an eight-hour day? How do we measure whether they're being productive? Do we go to a marketing executive and say, oh, your campaign was successful and we're going to determine that by the number of hours you put in or by the actual output that you created? Do we go to an author and say, oh, your book was a hit because you took 10,000 hours to write it as opposed to it doesn't matter how long it took you to write it. It was a hit because it was impactful and looking at the outcome. So we're saying along this line, too, we need to really, if we're going to trust people to set their hours, we're going to give them the tools they need to do to work from home, we have to trust them to provide good output and stop micromanaging on every single minute and hour that people are at work. Couldn't agree more. I've always found throughout my working life uh, in this industry and others, the best employers are the ones who treat their employees like grown-ups. And allow yeah. them to sort of, this is the job you're paying me to do. I will do the job. And I always find that if you're a company that sort of adopts that policy and isn't, you know, monitoring minute to minute, you need to be sitting at your desk yeah. staring at the wall for six hours if your job only took two, you get more production out of your employees. It's a, it's a beneficial relationship in both directions. You try to find efficiencies at work and you begin to recognize the lower value tasks. So rather than, say, a salesperson spending time doing administrative work, if they can find a way to make that simpler, they could go out and be client-facing and do better with their job and be more productive. So our research shows us right now, research out of Harvard Business came out showing that we're spending two and a half hours a day finding information. If we could get more efficient finding information, we can also reduce like the number of hours that we're putting in at work without changing our productivity. So let's stop thinking about the fact that, like, we're not sitting on assembly lines, yeah, we're not yeah. sitting at machines, we're not doing three rotations of shifts in manufacturing for those of us who have the privilege to work from home. So why not just measure us based on our output and stop micromanaging our time? Now, the other side of the equation here, of course, we've talked a lot about what we need to do, and you can't do this, and you can't do this to us. Yeah. What about what a company can do and what an employee can't do to a company? I mean, the, com- the, the, the employer still has some rights and still has some requirements from the person they're paying to do a job, right? Definitely, and they can have those requirements and they need to be clear which they are. What's happened, unfortunately, since COVID is employers on large stopped doing performance evaluations. So they didn't want to upset the boat. boat. They recognize that people had a lot of uncertainty around them. So if there are, in fact, bad apples in your group, people who are absent, people who are checked out, Following up with them is the manager's responsibility. The manager is not a parole officer where we have to check in with them every three months. They're actually a coach, a facilitator, a guide. If they notice that someone's not at work and they're not going to go and hold that person accountable, then they can't later on complain and say, oh, well, you know, this person I haven't given a performance review to for two years is not doing well. What do I do? Well, the idea here is that you performance coach them, you manage them. If you need to get into progressive discipline, you know, someone who never comes to any meeting, someone who doesn't complete their work, we have to start documenting that and working on getting them either fulfilling their requirements or working on getting them out. But if manager is going to be too afraid to step up and manage us, then that's, you know, that really talks about, well, what's your role then? Why do we have this hierarchy? Why am I reporting into you if you're not even going to follow up and make sure everybody on the team is contributing? 
Um, regardless of how this shapes out, we're talking about a massive upheaval in the way that we do things with 40% of the population now working from home. So uh, obviously things are going to change and it could get messy until we find, like you say, it'll get there, but it may be messy getting there. It'll get there, but the conversation is started. Yeah. So a silver lining on this whole COVID situation is the concept that we stopped looking at people like robots and started thinking about people holistically as employees with their personal issues and their health issues and their work issues. And that's really a very liberated conversation. Yeah, it is. It's very interesting. Anita, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Have a great time. You too. That is Nita Chinzer, who's an Associate Professor of Human Resource Management and Business Consulting at the University of Guelph. The situation surrounding EMS um, in the province of Alberta. We all know that it's been an ongoing issue. We've heard about the red alerts. Uh, You probably heard the story last week in Airdrie. A 10-year-old boy with a broken leg had to be taken to hospital by uh, a fire crew because there was no EMS crews available. Um, It all came to a head yesterday, possibly. A health minister talking about a 10-point plan to try and get a handle on the situation, and also a new committee that's being struck to take a look at what's going on and see if we can come up with some long-standing solutions. And joining us to give us an idea of what may be on the way, we're going to chat with Darren Sandbeck. Darren is the AHS EMS chief paramedic. Darren, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I appreciate your time. Hi, Shay. Thanks for having me. Um, I think we all know that the situation has been really, really tense. It's been dire in some instances. Just give us your assessment of how bad things are in terms of EMS service uh, in the province of Alberta right now. Yeah, so you know, as you mentioned, uh, the EMS system has been under uh, pretty incredible pressure over the last number of months. We've seen a 30% increase in call volume um, all across the province. Since, uh, since about this time um, last year. And so that's, you know, that's created challenges in the environment where it uh, creates pretty substantial increase in demand mm-hmm. um, for the resources that we have available. So um, what we've done is um, move forward with some strategies to try and alleviate that. Um, yeah, let's talk about that. A 10-point plan to try and relieve some of the pressure. Some of them are already underway. Let's just go through them uh, quickly here. Obviously, getting more paramedics on the job would be great. Province says, you know, it's up 9% over the past two years. A lot have been hired. So where are we in terms of hiring more and how many more do we need? We're in a constant hiring cycle, um, Shay. So, you know, we're hiring all the time. And um, we've also opened up some conversations with educational institutions that train paramedics to see, um, to talk to them about increasing their um, output as well. Um, You know, if there are paramedics out there that are underemployed or unemployed and want to be working, um, we certainly want to hear from them um, because, you know, as I said, we're constantly hiring. Um, and the other, a number of the points, if you can put them in a basket, uh, Darren, they all sort of talk to making sure the resource is being used um, as wisely as possible. It takes a look at, you know, transfers in between facilities. Do we need EMS crews doing that? Um, waiting in hospitals, things like that. So just give us an, an overall view of where we are, what you're hoping to do in terms of making sure that the resource is being used as efficiently as possible. Sure. So really, you know, in a nutshell, what what we're trying to do here is to protect EMS resources for the most critical patients. 
And I think that, you know, you can appreciate we see um, all sorts of calls for service, uh, some of which are for critical life-threatening emergencies, um, some of which are for um, really low-priority events. And so really what we've put together is a number of strategies that help us manage um, the the lower-priority end of this and, and tools with which to do that so that we can protect the EMS uh, resources and capacity for those truly critical patients that need timely response. So what kind of things, what does that look like? Let's give us some examples. I I was uh, interested to learn that you've stopped responding to motor vehicle collisions where, you know, in some cases, uh, as early as last month, right? Yes. So uh, that's a great example. Um, And so one of the things that we have done uh, back in early December was we updated the way that we respond to non-injury motor vehicle collisions. So, you know, in this province, we see days where we have freezing rainstorms or other weather events that cause a a large number of minor motor vehicle collisions, many, many of which don't result in an injury. So previously, we would send an ambulance um, just to check that out. Now, if our emergency communication officers, through their questioning of the caller, determine that there's no injuries in that event, um, we will not send an EMS um, response automatically. However, you know, if we do determine um, or if it is determined that there are injuries, we will always respond to those events. One of the points that you mentioned yesterday, transferring low-priority calls to other agencies in consultation with EMS physicians. What, what would those look like and what other agencies might be involved? Sure. So right now we're, um, we're transferring calls to the Poison and Drug Information Service um, where it's appropriate. And what we're working on is developing, again, some of those low-priority events to um, transfer those calls to HealthLink, where nurse advice can be provided um, by the resources that they have in HealthLink. So we're working on um, internal processes to be able to identify callers to 911 who it may be more appropriate for them to receive um, nurse advice and then transfer that call to 811. Okay. That seems to make sense. Um, in terms of the transfers, and I know we that's something that always comes up where we've, uh, we've heard stories about, you know, a truck being used to do inter-facility transfers and things like that, and maybe there's a better way of doing that. There's a pilot project you're hoping to get started in Red Deer, right? Yes. Yeah, so there's sort of two initiatives there that you're talking about. So one is managing um, better the non-emergency inter-facility transfer work. So we've got pilot projects running um, right now in Calgary in um, in a facility and then two facilities in the north zone where we use a um, algorithm approach or we um, use an approach through questioning to determine um, if in fact the patient that needs to be transferred um, what's the most appropriate way to transfer them so um, it, it takes through a series of decision points where um, at the bottom of that the, the patient may actually be able to mo- be moved m- most appropriately, by means other than ambulances. And that could be family members, you know, that could be community um, resources like handy vans or buses. Um, It could mean in some circumstances taxis um, moving these patients. Yeah, absolutely. Um, The one here that uh, I want to ask you about, it says creating um, a new integrated operations centre in Calgary with paramedic and hospital staff to improve flow of patients and resources. Does that deal with the the issue that we've talked about so many times over the years, Darren, of yeah. um, ambulance workers sitting in ERs 
for hours waiting for that chain of custody transfer where the hospital takes over control of the patient and um, the EM, uh, EMTs, the paramedics, are allowed to get back into the rig and get back to work? Yeah, in short, it does help with that, Shay. Uh, so we currently run an integrated operations center, an IOC in Edmonton, where we have uh, paramedic supervisors uh, that are present in that center along with traditional health system leaders. And what they do is they monitor uh, the entire Edmonton zone in real time. So they know what uh, each hospital has in it um, for emergency department patients. They know how many patients are going to be discharged from that hospital. They also know what um, the EMS uh, system is doing and what calls or patients uh, are going to be transported into those facilities. So they help in facility selection of where patients need to be transported to, where um, where it's most appropriate or where, you know, the emergency department um, work may be a little bit lighter. Mm-hmm. Um, they also help in um, in getting those crews um, out of those facilities when the EMS system um, demand is rising. So they're able to work directly with those facilities and, and have them start releasing um, EMS crews. Um, emergency department offload is still a challenge for us. Um, we continue to work on that um, every day, um, as recently as conversations late last night and this morning. Um, but it's really, you know, it's really a system flow um, issue um, in discharging patients from hospital, getting them moved out to appropriate places or back to home. Um, and really what happens is the system backs up into emergency department and then it backs up to us. Right, yeah. Um, what's the timeline in terms of trying to get some of these projects implemented and evaluated and assessed for permanency? What's I mean, is there a time frame on some of these? Yeah, so as we said yesterday, a number of these have already started. Yeah. Um, and so it have been underway actually for a bit of time now. Some of the new ones that we're starting, as we spoke about the Calgary Integrated Operations Centre, um, that's scheduled to come online um, uh, towards the end of March. And then some of the other changes that we're making in dispatch, specifically that we talked about in ensuring that we're keeping, you know, suburban and rural uh, resources or ambulances in their home communities, uh, that works um, rolling out. Actually, uh, today it has started. Uh, And then some of the what we talked about, um, the preempt and divert um, work where, where we're able to move ambulances off of lower priority calls to higher priority calls. Um, That's also starting in the coming days. Um, so just on the, the hiring issue, I mean, if the province is saying they've hired, they've increased it by 9% over the past two years. Um, just give me an assessment, your assessment of where we are in terms of the number of paramedics in the province of Alberta. If we've increased it 9% over two years, are we still in a shortage situation? And if we are, why? Um, I think what's really impacting us right now in the, in the staffing, um, realm here, Shay, is uh, what we've seen is a significant increase in sick time and um, and long-term leaves. Um, and, and, you know, we completely understand that. Our, our EMS paramedics are tired. Yeah. The, they've been working really hard in the in the last two years in pandemic. And, um, you know, I think we can appreciate that uh, even the, the PPE fatigue that our folks are going through when they're donning and doffing uh, PPE multiple times a day, um, you know, our, our folks are working really hard and they're tired and we understand that. And so some of this is to increase our staffing numbers so that we're able to get those folks, um, um, get, get them uh, recovered from their sick time, get them their vacation that they need to have 
so that we're able to staff resources. So it's really building staffing capacity into the system so that we're able to, you know, continue to staff our ambulances and give our folks the time off that they need. Uh, Darren, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. I really appreciate the time. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.